This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience on the 26th of February, 2020. The topic was longer term care after the bushfires. On the panel we have Wayne, lived experience representative, Ms. Ros Knight, clinical and counselling psychologist, president of Australian Psychological Society and clinic director at Macquarie University Psychology Clinic. Professor Richard Bryant, Sciencia Professor at School of Psychology, UNSW, and Director of Traumatic Stress Clinic at the Westmead Hospital. Professor Zachary Steele from the St. John of God Chair of Trauma and Mental Health, the School of Psychiatry at UNSW, and the Black Dog Institute. Chairing this session, we have Dr. Carol Newell. Hi everyone, welcome to tonight's Expert Insights. Um, longer term care after the bushfires. Before we get started, um, I just wanted to pay my acknowledgement to country, um, to the traditional custodians of this land, um, to, and pay my respects to elders both past, present, and to the future, and to welcome any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people here today. So tonight's gonna be about the bushfires and that longer term care. Um, just to give people some context in terms of this season's bushfires, um, especially if they're listening from overseas, in terms of the extent. Um, so from the December to now, the February period um, in 2022, we've lost about 10 million hectares of forests, which is about the size of South Korea. Um, 33 people have perished in these fires, including our, our firefighters. Um, estimated 1 billion animals lost their lives in the blaze, and we've lost approximately 3,000 homes. And so tonight we want to discuss a little bit about mental health and well-being and the services that are available in that longer term after the bushfires. And I feel a little bit like I have the Super Bowl superstars of psychology and of Black Dog Institute on our panel tonight. Um, and so I'll get everyone to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about your expertise, especially in the context of um, what we can understand about well-being um, in after these bushfires. So we might start with Richard at the end there to just introduce himself. Okay, I'm Richard Bryant. I'm Professor of Psychology here at UNSW um, and I'm an honorary here at Black Dog. Um, for many years, I've been working in the field of post-traumatic stress, so I run a traumatic stress clinic. Um, but we've also been doing lots of uh, research in lots of sorts of disasters, um, going back to 2004 tsunami, Hurricane Katrina, 9-11. Um, did a lot of work with Black Saturday and numerous other events like that. And we've sort of been looking at tracking the mental health of people, but also the processes that influence that, and also what are the strategies that you can put in play to try to help people adapt. Okay, and then next we have Professor Zachary Still. Yeah, hi everybody. So, um, like Richard, I also work in the area of traumatic stress. I work in a hospital setting and we provide treatment to first responders and uh, military personnel that have been injured uh, often psychological injuries in the course of their work. Um, but before that, I have done a lot of work looking at people's response to complex emergencies and um, uh, that process of recovery. Next, we have Ros Knight. Hi, everyone. I'm the president of the Australian Psychological Society. Um, 
In my history, I am a clinical and counselling psychologist and worked with trauma early in my career. So I have a personal interest, but my point in being here today is that the APS coordinates about 24,000 psychologists and clearly we're setting up processes and procedures for rolling out the workforce going forward to address what could be the long-term impact. And our fantastic lift-in experienced volunteer, Wayne. Uh, I'm Wayne Wiggum. I work with the Black Dog as a lived experience presenter. I've been doing that for 10 years um, after suffering depression starting at six. But I also served in the New South Wales Fire Brigade for 10 years. So uh, went through two major bushfires as well as many other critical incidents. So I've seen what it's like from the inside when these things happen. So let's get this podcast started. My first question is for Wayne. Um, being a fiery, you've seen bushfires and urban fires. Um, what do you think has been different about this season in the context of mental health with regards to um, this year's bushfires? The bushfires, the major bushfires I went to in the past, four or five days and they were over, and you had um, plenty of workers that weren't working too long shifts. These ones uh, that have gone for so long with the firefighters having to turn off, turn up day after day, it wears you. You see a lot of very sad things, you know, animals dying, choosing which houses to save and which ones you can't, and dealing with those on the fire ground who may have lost loved ones, um, which I found the most difficult. Um, and all these things, if they're day after day, really wear you. Plus you have the pressures from home because you're not bringing in, you know, you may not be bringing in the money that you would be normally. Um, so while you're saving the world, you can be, you know, you can be getting a hard time at home because you're not looking after the home front. Um, it's very difficult. And when you are on the fire ground for that time, you are treated like a bit of a hero. You're, everyone's clapping and applauding you, so you're part of something and it feels really good. And when it's over, all of a sudden, you're by yourself again in the dog-eat-dog -dog world and that can be quite shattering to you as well. They're the main issues that you know I really faced, I think, and um, yeah. So coming on out of such an extended bushfire season, I think what's on everyone's mind is, you know, the idea of trauma, um, and there's been a lot of talk about that. So the next question is for Richard. Let's start with that first. Although we know that other mental health issues are really important, um, what do you know about the prevalence rates of trauma? What do we know about the prevalence rates of trauma after bushfire events? And does everyone who experiences trauma then go on to develop PTSD? Um, it's easy to sort of throw out a percentage here of mm. you know, how many people are affected, but that's actually pretty simplistic. Um, I think the first point to note, and this is a, a universal rule after every disaster, we just need to emphasise it time and time again, is that most people are resilient. And you know, most people do adapt and bounce back afterwards. And when I say most, I mean you know, at least three quarters of any population. And this has been seen all over the world after all sorts of events. Um, so we shouldn't sort of start off with the um, assumption that people are vulnerable. It's quite the opposite. Um, in terms of the rates of mental health problems that people have, um, we need to sort of talk about persistent problems. So lots of people will be stressed during an event and immediately afterwards, and that's not a psychological problem. That's actually a psychological response 
that's probably pretty healthy and adaptive because if you've got, you know, if you're on a fire ground, you should be scared because that's how we survive. It's if that keeps lasting afterwards, then it's an issue. It's, and I think sort of the, the third qualifier I'd put on it is that it depends on how much of the disaster you've been exposed to. So, for example, after Black Saturday, we did big studies and looking at people who are in highly exposed areas, you know, towns that got totally devastated, and those that were like lesser affected and those who were lesser affected still. And you can very much see a linear decrease in how much mental health problems there exists. But, you know, if I had to put a number on it, on the data that we've got from disasters, you know, you'd probably say between 10 to 15% of people, you know, probably have, you know, a mental health problem. Now, that might not sound much, but that is actually a lot of a population when you think because disasters affect lots and lots of people. So in absolute numbers, that really is a significant number. If I talk about the sorts of problems that people have, usually most people jump to post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and that is, you know, common. Um, but, you know, as common and sometimes more common uh, is depression, anxiety, and things that are not necessarily disorders, but they're just more common problems. So sleep, for example, or increased substance abuse, alcohol use, they can be very, very common. Domestic violence, that can be increased. So there's problems, other things that aren't necessarily psychiatric diagnoses, but there's still mental health issues that we need to take seriously. Now, people don't usually just turn up and say, look, I have PTSD or I have depression. And this question I might turn to, to for Zachary. Um, what, what would people usually present when, when they turn up at their GPs? What do GPs, for example, need to look out for that might point to was, you know, that this might be a mental health problem following the bush, bushfires? Yeah, so, you know, just following up a little bit on what Richard said and just the complexity of responding to the needs of a community, um, and you really need to sort of look through the whole journey of recovery. So during the acute phase, um, there will be some people in acute crisis that need care. Um, and, uh, you know, often people with pre-existing mental disorders or with extreme um, uh, reactions, often we describe them as acute stress disorder, that might appear. But when you screen within that period, about 75% of the people that you screen positive actually are just experiencing distress and it will resolve. So, you know, we've got to be very careful somewhat during that acute phase, you know, because as, as Richard underscored, you know, a normative reaction to all of this pressure is actually distress. Um, and that doesn't necessarily indicate that there's real problems. Um, probably the research, the, the most uh, distressing part of the research is the failure to detect the long-term impairment that comes about. And if we sort of look at previous responses in the past, um, people that do develop uh, mental health conditions afterwards often don't get access to care. So that process of screening and identifying the onset of those is really important. And that can be substantially delayed so if you just look at the whole reconstruction experience, you know, it's drawn out over a very long time, the rebuilding, the housing, the financial loss, the disruption to livelihood. 
And, you know, people will often, if we go back to that term resilience, that resilience might take them first through, you know, a year or so, but then they're still experiencing substantial social disadvantage and distress. And that's why, as Richard said, we do see a broad range of different disorders. And by that time, of course, the whole of the, you know, public opinion, the screening has shifted on to other issues. And yet, the mental health burden comes quite substantially after the acute phase of a disaster and completes and unfolds over time. Um, and you know, the best way to sort of tailor that is, to some extent, is also to identify the high risk groups. So the statistics that Richard gave before are absolutely right. But within that, the prevalence for some groups are much higher. We know that groups that have much higher levels of exposure um, have much higher risks, and so it will extend to levels much beyond that 10 to 15% for people that have lost um, immediate family, had houses destroyed, um, uh, experienced multiple traumas, especially if they combine with pre-existing traumas. So there are high-risk groups where it's really important to maintain good sc screening over time, and many of these conditions will have a delayed onset as well. So, um, so the long-term perspective is very important in this space. Okay. And Ross, we've got the question for you. We've talked a lot about adults here, right, um, and what, what it might manifest as. Um, what about children? What are some of the early warning signs that parents and teachers may want to look out for? So children, surprisingly, are often, I suppose, the litmus for the family. So parents are often very good at keeping an eye on their kids and noticing what's happening for the kids and maybe less so on noticing what's happening for them, in fact. So often a child will be presented even before an adult presents for assistance. And really, for kids, what we're looking at is um, somebody. some of the signs are simple and similar to adults, you know, not sleeping well, getting nightmares, struggling to concentrate in school, starting to act out, doing drawings that seem awfully vibrant and violent and those sort of things. So you, some of it is, is fairly obvious and some of it's a bit more subtle. So depending on the child in front of you, if you know that there's somebody who tends to act out, then maybe they're getting more violent. Maybe they're starting to hit kids at school. Maybe they're hitting siblings and being fairly non-negotiable and just belligerent. But other kids, of course, who are quieter by nature are more likely to withdraw. So you see them become more anxious, perhaps more clingy, don't want to leave mum when they have to go to school. So depending on the child in front of you depends on the reaction you get. And of course, it depends on the context in which they're living at the moment, how that's going to display as well. But that would sort of be the key things you would look for when you're looking at a child. Now, you've all point to like longer term effects, right? That happens a few years down the track. How far have we tracked down? Like how, how far into the longitudinal studies have we tracked where we still see effects from bushfires? Richard, you did some work on Lax Saturday um, that tracked some longer term effects. Yeah, we've tracked Black Saturday 10 years after the fires and there have been some other studies um, in the States that have sort of done similar sort of time frames, not many. And essentially what you see, and I think this is a, fair, a bit of a generalisation, but it's, it's fairly true, is that over time we tend to see PTSD rates come down um, in a sense that the, the direct effects of the event, in this case fire, um, does tend to diminish a bit over time. It still remains elevated, but it does come down. 
What we tend not what we tend to see though is that the depression can actually still persist. And we saw this in Black Saturday. So that 10 years later, the depression really wasn't coming down compared to three years after. And I think Zach was starting to go down this line where it speaks to the issue of it then becomes not so much what is the event itself impacting on the person, but all the subsequent um, ripple effects. So if you look at something like Black Saturday, and I suspect this is going to happen in the current fires, um, you start to have a downturn in economy, people lose their jobs, um, a community just becomes a bit more disintegrated. Um, and so those sort of effects actually are not felt immediately. And we've you know, seen this you know, in numerous events. There was an interesting study done after Hurricane Katrina, where, as you probably all know, the uh, rebuilding and the government response to Katrina was not exactly wonderful. You know, there was, there was huge delays in that. And they actually saw increases in depression and suicide after Katrina. And they attributed that to the fact that the rebuilding, I mean, like a year or so afterwards, people were still living in this, like, you know, temporary sort of shanty town type environments. I mean, they were living under incredible stress. And we see this a lot after disasters. And I think in the current fire season, um, we don't know what the rates of mental health problems are going to be. Um, I personally would doubt that PTSD rates, et cetera, would be as high as Black Saturday in that I think the number of people, if you actually know what went on in Black Saturday and what people directly got exposed to in terms of it was intense fire for a few days that just took everyone by surprise and it was just unbelievably overwhelming. Um, 173 people died you know, in a very short period of time. Um, this has been a much more expansive and extensive fire season. Um, and I've got to, I would not be surprised if the longer-term effect is that we do see significant impact in terms of depression, worry, sleep problems. Because just take tourism alone. I mean, what impact is that going to have on the long term of a lot of these places that absolutely rely on tourism. Um, and this you know, obviously has a big, big impact. Somebody loses a job. What impact does that have on a family environment? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this question's for Wayne. What about emergency workers? So you've, you've been a fiery. Um, what are some of the unique presentations in emergency workers that can serve as a signal for them to potentially seek some help? Um, whether it be PTSD or depression or another presentation. Um, we, we talked a little bit about their unique experiences, especially around bereavement as well. I noticed that if we went to particular uh, events where, you know, there were bodies or things that you might not want to see, the people that, and I'm, you know, this is just from a, an observation, the ones I worried about were the ones that wanted to keep talking about what we'd seen for a couple of weeks. Um, we tried to imagine that it was special effects. So our little technique was to imagine that whatever we saw was special effects from a movie and we actually weren't looking at it. And that helped me a lot. Um, you know, I always used to be amazed by it. But a lot of the guys that were affected, they'd want to talk about it privately and just one-on-one. -on -one. Um, they um, started to drink a bit more. They were coming to work drunk or wanting to drink at work. 
Marijuana was widely used in the fire brigade after events. Um, and a lot of the people didn't want to seek help because they thought, you know, back then there was mostly men in the fire brigade and most of them said, look, I'm struggling but I'm the rock of my family. If I admit that I something wrong, then I'll let the family down. Now I know that to be the rock of the family, if you seek help, then you're setting a good example for your kids and everyone else. I mean, that's a bit of redefining how we look at ourselves. But mainly drink, drugs, um, and, you know, would not get help. We had a chaplain that came and saw us back then, but he wasn't very well versed in anything like this. So really masculinity stopping us from thinking, seeking help because we thought we'd be letting everyone else down, hiding it and turning to drink and drugs. And, yeah, a lot of relationships did break down after about a year, if that happened, obviously. So they were the sad things. And we, you know, and, and then a lot of them said they kept on playing the movie over and over in their mind. And I know that might not, I think that's the difference between post-traumatic stress. When I hear my friends talk about their post-traumatic stress, it's a movie that they can't remove of what we saw. And um, that's when they really need to seek help, but they don't. And that, a lot of that is around masculinity and not believing that we ever should, unfortunately. But I know that is changing, and that's what we all try to change, I'm yeah. sure. That's good. Um, so, you know, you mentioned um, talking about the trauma afterwards, and this next question is for Zachary. Um, you know, I noticed um, immediately after the bushfires, um, a lot of psychs just wanting to do something to be able to help with mental health. And, um, of course, you know, we've had a few years now where we've explored the idea of debriefing and universal interventions trying to prevent the development of mental health problems. Before we get started talking about the efficacy of these techniques, just could we have a brief rundown of what kind of interventions are out there for that are being tested or have been tried um, right after disasters? Yeah, look, and um, I mean, the fact that we're having this discussion today is this growing recognition that <clears throat> something about disasters and mental health are somehow connected. That wouldn't have been the case, you know, 30 years ago. You wouldn't have thought to talk to people like us. Um, so there's this growing awareness. And as this tragedy was unfolding, you know, one of the very first things the Prime Minister did was to announce the $76 million mental first aid response, you know, to um, support first responders, but communities as well. So it's very much in the forefront of the mind. Um, <clears throat> So there have been, you know, various attempts of, you know, can we possibly get in and, and prevent at a community level um, the, the risk to mental health? So um, that's been, you know, this ideal for a while. I, I suppose the first thing just to note around that that we've sort of observed over time is that at some level we don't want to ever forget a truism that real world solutions need real sorry real world problems need real world solutions, um, and we never want to see mental health prof professionals offered as an alternative to practical solutions to problems. You know, it's easier to send in the counsellors and fix the problem, and we've all got to always get that balance right. And as a profession, those of us who are mental health professionals, there's a vulnerability that if we don't take that broader perspective, we'll just be part of a misguided response. Now, um, at the moment, the most common framework that's used often in these sec sections is something called psychological first aid, which tries to mobilise 
um, the delivery of practical assistance, but in a way that's informed through some sort of psychological principles to support coping. But basically, it's more or less a brokerage model of moving in. Uh, it's a training that's provided by first to first responders and volunteers um, with a little bit of mental health awareness around how to deal with distress situations, but basically trying to find practical solutions. In an earlier generation, there was a belief that if we promoted discussion of it, that might very well assist the process of integration of this experience into memory. It seemed to look good on paper, it had a good theory. The term behind that was psychological debriefing. It was applied at a universal level um, and it was informed by, to some extent, the trauma-focused interventions that we know work really well. And it just had this paradoxical effect so that the research that came from that setting showed that some individuals actually experience an increase in their symptoms after that. So there's just been this general response that um, overall universal interventions don't have a lot of evidence base um, when they're just entirely psychological. Uh, you know, but that kind of psychological first aid, or especially material assistance, you know, again, if going back to the um, you know, international experience, you know, providing housing in one setting was found to result in uh, five times the remission of mental disorder than the fa failure to provide housing. So, you know, material assistance is a very important part of uh, that mental health response. So. This is a question for Richard. We've talked a little bit about this, but why is debriefing so paradoxical? It makes sense. It seems to work later on, but what's happening immediately after that trauma that seems to cause that damage? The way it's traditionally been done um, is that, number one, it's usually given to people, and these people don't necessarily ask for it. So I think there's a usually you know, in most models, if any of, any of us want help for anything, we can see a doctor, a dentist, a counsellor, we go and approach them and we put up our hand. Traditionally, in most of the debriefing models, because it usually, it initially, historically came out of the first responder, um, or, you know, organisations, but then it got picked up by just people in the community. But it was imposed on people too often. And so that's not a good start. Also, it tends to occur without an assessment. So it was a universal intervention. So somebody would rock up, provide this, um, being often within a day or two days, when still, you know, everything's, you know, surging in the, in the individual. Um, but they actually haven't had an assessment. So you could do it with somebody who's, you know, previously been suicidal, um, have got huge family problems, you know, I mean, who knows what? And again, that doesn't seem to be very sensible. Um, and I guess the other mechanism is that people thought activating and getting people to talk about trauma memories in the first day or so, and I won't go into the, 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 the neurobiology of this, but the notion being that um, if we do that, we can over-consolidate that trauma memory. And that might be what Zach's referring to when he talked about studies that have found that debriefing led to worse outcomes because they may be over-consolidating um, those trauma memories 
by getting people to talk about it and relive it in that very, very acute phase when the stress hormones are already still, you know, pumping incredibly, you know, strongly. Um, so where things have moved on to, is, is, as Zach said, is more psychological first aid, which, to be honest, is a, a rebadging of debriefing, but they've taken out that component of getting people to talk about it because they see that as the, the villain. And I think another thing is that, as Zach said, psychological first aid is meant to help people cope. That's its goal. Debriefing, the way it was initially set up, it was meant to be preventative. It was meant to prevent PTSD and things like that. Debriefing doesn't aim to do that wisely. Um, it's just there, you know, well, basically as Zach explained it. Um, so they're very different goals. Um, and hopefully, you know, the mechanisms of psychological first aid, which I should emphasize, has never been evaluated. So it's taken the part of the diagnosis. Everyone's dumped on psychological debriefing because we've got controlled trials that tell us it doesn't prevent anything, that it might even be toxic. So everyone's now promoting psychological first aid with great gusto. And we really shouldn't. Because, to be honest, it's the best we've got um, because we don't think it does any harm and it seems to make sense. But we should keep in mind that we don't have evidence for what it's doing. And one of the reasons that we really don't have evidence is that at least with psychological debriefing, at least it had an explicit goal that I'm trying to prevent PTSD, so we could measure it. The goal of debriefing, of psychological first aid, is a little bit vaguer. It's really to help people cope, and that's a harder thing to measure. And I think that's one of the major reasons we really haven't had tight trials mm. to really evaluate it. And it, it sounds different to mental health literacy, the Tony Orr model, right? Yeah, no, totally, absolutely, totally different. So mental yeah. health first aid is a mental health literacy program. Mm -hmm. uh, psychological first aid actually came out of disaster and complex emergency settings to be able to structure first responders' response and give them some skill sets to deal with acute distress while trying to provide practical assistance. It's sort of a tool to structure psychosocial interventions in disaster zones. And to be honest, the psychological first aid has manualised what sensible people have been doing for eons. So, you know, if you go back to what chaplains used to do often, you know, in the military, you know, for 100 years or, you know, what lots of people would have done, this is essentially what first aid does, but it's manualised it. So it sounds like trying to intervene too soon afterwards doesn't really help. When can we be confident in terms of, let's suppose, for practitioners who are practicing privately, when can we be confident in terms of, yep, this is the time when we can start the interventions? I think time in the context of a disaster is an interesting notion because if, it's, if, you've, been, if you've been through a rape or a motor vehicle accident or something like that, it's actually quite discreet in a sense. There's always going to be lingering effects. But with a disaster, and take what we've just been through this season, I mean, when did the disaster finish? And, you know, for you personally, let's say you're on the south coast of New South Wales or East Gippsland. I mean, when do you say it was over? All right, the the immediate sort of emergency status might have been ease on a certain day, 
but you know with the temperatures and the winds for the next week or so, and you could still be without power and you know, patchy communication, etc. So we need to be cognizant of you know, when the person is still coping with current stresses, and I, my argument is that if I'm still de dealing with the acute current stresses of a disaster, we need to be helping the person deal with that. And exactly what Zach said, they need to be given safety, information, social support, you know, all the practicality stuff that they need. Um, when the dust settles, then we need to allow enough time, I think, to let people adapt. And I personally feel that if people are having persistent problems, that's when I think we intervene. Um, I think the notion of early intervention, um, I think, to be honest, sometimes it's overdone, which is funny coming from someone like me who's done so much of my work on early intervention, but so often we think we've got to get in early or we've missed some magical window, we've missed the boat. And I think often we know that we can get just as good effect if we wait a bit of time. And often the person's in a better space because they've dealt with housing issues or they've just, just time has settled and they're in a better place to actually think about dealing with this. But also by then we will know who's actually got a problem as distinct from who's having a transient stress reaction. Yeah. Uh, the next question's for us. We, we've recently received some funding in terms of supporting people after the bushfires. Can you tell us a little bit about what services are available, what funding's available at the moment? Um, it's a fabulous who... initiative from the government to allow discrete Medicare funding for post-bushfire trauma and mental health issues. If only mental health funding was always like this, it would be fantastic. So it's very similar to what we get um, in terms of psychological sessions now under Medicare in that it's 10 sessions per calendar year. It is um, divided into different practitioners and what they can do, and there's options for telehealth. However, where it is significantly different is that a person in a community can decide that they need help. And they don't have to go to their GP to get a referral. They don't have to go through all the rigmarole. They can try and find a psychologist uh, to assist them, um, for example, through our referral service, but anywhere where they can identify somebody that they believe will be able to help them. And they can start seeing them without any other, call it admin, to go through to get there. The psychologist doesn't have to write back to GP, doesn't have to um, do any of that background stuff. Now, of course, we expect the psychologist will be very mindful of it being able to identify that it is a bushfire-related mental health concern and will be noting that within their notes uh, to address it. So, um, But it does give the freedom for people to choose the interventions they want and when they want and how they're going to do it. The other big difference, I suppose, from the current Medicare items is telehealth, of course, has been around for a while now. We can um, assist people in our rural and remote communities more effectively from the city, given we do have population difficulties around available help. What's great about this one is that all of the um, geographical limitations are removed. So arguably, somebody who was down the south coast uh, got caught up in the bushfires came back to Sydney but can't actually 
um, get to see somebody face to face for various reasons can actually access a psychologist via telehealth to work through those bushfire-related concerns. So there's, I think, a much more person-centred approach to the Medicare items for bushfires and clearly much ease of access and availability. So it's fantastic. Right. So it's not region-specific. That means no. can somebody in Sydney itself get telehealth? Yep. From somebody in... That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, so they've tried to remove as many barriers to help seeking as possible. And the next question I have is, do they have to be directly impacted by the bushfires? Do they need to prove property loss? Do they have to prove no. that something's no. happened to them as a consequence of these bushfires? I suppose prove something's happened to them. By definition, if they're taking the um, approach of contacting somebody and saying the bushfire has affected me, then something has happened to them. Um, but, you know, taking on board what Richard and Zach have said before, clearly those more exposed, those who've had more to do with it, are going to have greater effect. Um, but I know as a practitioner that it can be simply having been there and observed stuff and then being yanked out, put back in your normal life and treated like, well, you should just be fine now, um, can be part of um, what they then need to deal with. So it's great. It's provided it is linked to the bushfires, then... Um, you can seek that assistance. And how long do these MBS items last for? Two years. Okay. So at the moment, I think would be my comment. I think the government is working out what it thinks should be an adequate time frame for all of these things to be addressed, and we'll see. Okay. You think that's long enough, Richard and Zachary? Two years? Um, it does come back to how you define fire-related. Because mm. I think a lot of the problems, you know, will become more generic mental health issues, which do, do come under the general better access, you know, mm. plan. Um, now, no one expects there to be a tsunami of people seeking help. And I know the government isn't expecting it. Mm -hmm. um, because that's what we know from all previous experience. Um, but there will, be, there will be cases where it will be some time later. So we know from Black Saturday in the work we did that the category of people who are most severely distressed, um, a third of those people were not getting help. Right. Um, and that was back in a time when the Victorian government was putting a lot of resources into those areas. So it wasn't a lack of services being available back then. Um, it was that people weren't help-seeking. And the, the lack of help-seeking um, is always an issue after an, a disaster. But it's, it's not, not just a disaster, it's just in the community generally, people with mental health issues. Many will not seek help, which of course is a person's right. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting notions is that, you know, the government and others have been talking about the need to um, make sure that everybody gets help. Mm. But it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, and there are certain people that would rather deal with it on their own. Yeah. And, and that's the nature of it. Wayne, what do you think encourages somebody to seek help? What was the deciding factor? I mean, you've been a fiery. In some stations I was at, if we came back from a really harsh incident, you know, we'd sit around and go, you know, we'd say, gee, that was heavy. Is everyone okay? 
you know, how are you feeling? We'd talk it out. And other stations, people would just come back and go straight to their rooms and just shut the door. And they tended to be the ones where I saw my friends fall over a period of time after a critical incident um, when we didn't talk about it. I think it, for everything I've seen in every part of life as a person who's suffered, if you've got someone to talk to who's a similar type of person, who's not ashamed to say, you know, I'm falling or we fall, do it with me. Um, so it really helps within a station and it can go station to station. Um, in a station you have four shifts, so bleep platoon can be really good. A platoon might just go run in their rooms, um, you know, have a drink and forget about it. But if, as men, and uh, if, you know, if one person in a station says, well, I've, I've sought help before and it was good for me, it tends to lower boundaries for the other. Uh, it sets an example. Whereas if you have a boss or a station where you think, you know, we're men, we're men or we're firefighters now with more women in and just lock yourselves away, it'll eat you. And, and it creeps up on people. I've seen people go down after six months. Obviously, the problem in rural and remote areas is at times it can take a long time to get in to see somebody. I don't know with the new um, funding and that it might be easier, but in some towns I go to, it's six months for everyone to see a psychologist. Musselbrook even rang Sydney University to try and get students from their final year to get up. So, you know, and then people then give up. They say, well, I can't get help, you know, and that's when they fall even further. But it's, you know, it's going to be really hard to do something about that. But it does go station to station, shift to shift. Are there any predictors for people who do seek help versus those that don't after a disaster? I mean, one of the big problems, you know, certainly I work in a tertiary referral facility for many first responders and the, the vast majority of first responders, by the time they get their diagnosis, they look back and they identify that the onset of symptoms was 10 years before. And that it had just taken that long for it to progressively burn through their personal resources to increase the level of disability for them to eventually put their hand up and ask for help. And often that's when disability surges. So being able, trying to get a shorter response cycle between the onset of symptoms and linking into care is really important. Um, because especially for first responders, very often you just don't identify you've got the symptoms because the PTSD symptoms are very similar to your everyday workplace experience, you know. Uh, we know under extreme stress, nightmares, you know, flashbacks, they're just part of a normal... So they're normalised. You don't know that you're injured, actually. Um, one of our... You know, one of the people that I ha have the opportunity to work with said, well, you know, back in World War I and World War II, people got no help across their life. The Vietnam vets took them 30 years to get any help. We're down to 10 years. Maybe we can get it down to five years. Um, you know, the Black Saturday study that Richard sort of led with the team from Melbourne University, you know, um, was finding a lot of your findings around the three to four to five year mark where you had these elevated community things and the 10-year data still, Richard knows it, but I don't think it's come out yet. Um, so we do have to take this longer-term picture and, and people may not actually particularly realise that they've got an impairment because the impairment plays out over time and it's maybe not to quite some time later that you start to say actually I'm just not coping I'm not functioning the way I used to 
And so it's at that point where trying to have health systems that have some capacity to remember risk and to check in around that and bring you know, evidence-informed algorithms about people that are at risk to check in with them, that's what we sort of need at a public health level in these perspectives, you know. And so it certainly is good, you know, the, the, the announcement, you know, at one level it is good, especially the funding of telepsychiatry. At another level, you don't want to lead to a fragmentation of the healthcare system, you know, and the, the PHN and the primary healthcare network has to be the backbone of the delivery of healthcare. And because what we're really wanting to do is make sure that that surveillance and detection starts to kick in across this longer period where impairment is going to play out um, rather than just thinking it's all going to be front-ended, which it won't. It never has been so many disaster settings. It's always the three to five year period where, you, where the more fulsome burden starts to hit. I think it's interesting that um, it goes back to our discussion of psychological debriefing. Um, Zach mentioned the PHNs, and I think it's interesting that the, the 76 Moody and the government um, has put up, a lot of it has been about um, developing capacity in the, those PHNs in the areas that need it, um, rather than just doing a, a stopgap, you know, parachuting people in. And in my discussions, with the Department of Health during the fires, they, they explicitly said, you know, we are not going to follow that model of parachuting people in. And so I think, you know, it's a reflection of how the landscape has changed, that even at a government level, they realise that that immediate throw in a counsellor, that does the job. If you're going to do something about mental health, it's about developing the local capacity so it's going to be there and stay there for some period of time, you know, time will tell how long that is, but that's clearly what is needed. Okay. So we've hit 6.48, and now we're going to turn the questions to the audience. Sarah Renwick-Lau is the GP in Malakuta at the moment, and she was telling me recently that the people in her community just don't want to talk to the blow-ins. So, I mean, that's really a comment in support of what you were just saying, Richard, about the parachuting of people in not being a good idea. And although many of us may have this incredible urge to go and help, it, it's perhaps not the right thing to do. I, yeah, I'd take it further. I don't think it's perhaps. No. I mean, I've, I've been arguing for years that, you know, if you've got a disaster, the last thing you need on the ground is someone like me. You know, someone like me needs to be in the background, advising, you know, and then later on, maybe someone like me plays a role. But, you know, you really need the frontline people, you know, and the local people, they, they're the people who can play an active role. I've also heard it said that um, social connectedness in that early aftermath is one of the most important things in terms of people and their recovery. Would you agree with that? I'm sure everyone would agree with that. Um, it's something that's always talked about in the trauma world, disaster world a lot, as it being a very positive thing. One of the interesting things we did after Black Saturday, we actually study this. Um, I'll bore you with a bit of a study for a moment. Um, we did a, what's called a social network analysis in all the areas of um, the, that were affected by the fires. And what this involves is 
you know, asking everyone about their PTSD and depression and all that kind of stuff. But we asked everyone to tell us 10 people who you know um, who you're close to. And we got everyone to do this. And what it meant is that afterwards we could do a social net, social mapping exercise where we could link everybody to everybody in all the different towns. And what it's been able to show us is that you really need to understand the mental health response at a social level. So, for example, it does appear that in PTSD, for example, it, it even has a contagion effect. So the, the PTSD people, um, people who are interacting with PTSD people tend to become more depressed over time. And the people who are developing PTSD, they seem to be part of a social network, but they tend to be part of a fractured social network. So the people, they know bunches of people, but those people don't know each other. Whereas the people who are more resilient, the networks they're part of, they're connected. So that's actually protective. So I think we're only developing the methodologies now to understand what happens at a community social level. But, you know, it's, when it talk, you can't talk about disaster without talking about community level factors. Um, we just have to be smarter about you know, understanding it more. Hi, um, I was just wondering, um, we're visiting a bushfire affected area this weekend and my um, training is as a clinical psychologist. My intention is to drop some resources somewhere. Um, so my question is around, is there a way for people who are ready to access help, is there a database where they can search for telehealth and bushfire support like trained clinicians because depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, I don't think really covers it. I think, uh, and I was wondering, is that is that searchable on the Find a Psych service, for example? I believe it is. Um, we've been rolling out training and trying to accredit people so that they don't just walk in and do all the wrong things when they arrive. Um, and we coordinate with the Red Cross, of course, who do most of the on-ground side of things. So um, more than happy to give you contact details directly, but equally if you phone through our main switch number and tell them you want to talk to somebody about the, um, dropping off materials and things, um, yep, they'll be able to help you. I'd also think an important thing is, you know, were you invited and, and how were you invited? And I think that's an important part of it because I know part of the 76 million that the government's funding is about training up the local capacity um, you know, for people to do it. So one of our advices to the people, um, sorry, sorry, government, about how they spend that money is that um, things like headspace centres and, and things like that, I mean, are they properly equipped? And so there will be substantive training going on to upskill them in things that are post-disaster, post-trauma type interventions. And that, I don't know who's doing that training yet, but if it plays out the way I expect it to, it'll, they will get good evidence-based training. So again, it's another good example of having the local capacity there. Because coming back to Zach's point, it's about, you know, for the long term. I don't know if you're familiar with the federal government's Head to Health website, which was established a couple of years ago as a portal to all mental health resources, particularly online resources, but also face-to-face -face resources to some extent, not like your website, Doris. Now, 
in the last couple of months, the Head to Health people have added a bushfire section. So you can search that portal for a whole lot of resources, both online and face-to-face -face resources that are specifically related to the bushfires. So that's really worth knowing about. Hi, my name is Anne. How important is it to have stories told where people are talking about, you know, what they, how they managed rather than all the dark stories. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have, you know, we need a full gamut of stories, but I was impressed by how well people were doing, actually, a lot of people. Um, if people are talking how well they're going, is that going to be troubling to people who aren't traveling as well, or how helpful is it to have good stories coming out? Can I get Wayne to maybe answer that question first, and then we'll move on to the researchers. Does it help? To, or does it hinder when you're hearing somebody cope better as a firing? Oh, it's, you know, it's good to get the positive things happening, but the big problem in rural and remote towns is loneliness and isolation. I went to a Lifeline lecture a little while ago on 300,000 calls a year just for loneliness. So those people will be there and they might, and again, they're around people during the fire. Then if there's no sporting teams, if there's no, nothing in town for people to get together... They might not see anyone for two, three weeks. And that's when the damage, you know, you think too much, start to ruminate on what you've seen. But to see people come to the towns to spend money and to help, it does give you heart when you really need it. But we really, I think we really have to be aware of the loneliness factor of, the, of people being a part of something they're not, and then being alone to face their thoughts. Um, I think. We should be encouraging those people to join social groups, become part of something. And those rural fire services, when they get together, they need to talk together as well to keep themselves in a loop. Because they will find one by one, they might start dropping off and they won't see them. Um, and that's when we have to make sure, you know, they get brought back into the flock. But definitely people coming and supporting is heartening when you're starting to feel that, you know, at one time you're a hero and now next thing you're all alone and no one will help you. So every little part helps for sure. And I think we do need to keep in mind the distinction between the professional and the rural fire service. I think Wayne's point's an important one. And if you, if you think about what goes on in like a place like Fire and Rescue, you know, which is professional, I mean, they're cohesive units. You know, these people, you know, work together. They you know, for long shifts, I mean, they, they're there. Uh, if you're rural, I mean, you'll come together like every second weekend if you're lucky for a training or, and then, you know, you'll, when there's a fire, you come together. But then after the fire season, you know, you're out doing your job and you're not going to necessarily regroup. You don't have that same sense of cohesion. And trust me, the, the rural fire service is very, very aware of this and, you know, they've, they've definitely got a lot in play at the moment to try to deal with... Uh, the aftermath, but again, I think it just speaks to the loneliness issue that, that Wayne's talking about. It's it's key for them. Any other questions? You talked about it um, being too early for some people to do anything because they're just going through normal sort of reactions to a traumatic sort of event. Is it? Is there? Does that apply to children as well? I'm not a child expert, mm. and. My own kids always tell me I should never say anything about parenting. Um, but so I will really beg anybody else to, to sort of comment on this. 
But in terms of like getting through the experience, you know, the two big things that I think I've always heard from people who know a lot more than me is number one, you know, the, the parents need to try to convey to the children that the world is safe. Um, because children get those messages largely from their, their caregivers. Um, you know, if, if the parents are constantly verbalising worry and anxiety, I mean, we know from a lot of research that that's going to engender anxiety about the world in the children. So, you know, if, if I know that mum and dad are conveying to me that, you know, the world is going to be okay and that they're going to be there for me, I mean, that's very reassuring. I think also during an event, it's about how much we expose a child to information because children have a capacity for information in a different way from adults. So, you know, we'd often advise that during an event, you know, you would limit, for example, the amount of exposure a, a young child would have to the media, you know, about all the gloom and doom because we know that the media, you know, will only play stuff if it is dramatic and it's gloom and doom, because that's what we love. We love, you know, pictures of, you know, huge walls of fire and, you know, burnt koala bears and things like that. The, the, the media loves to get that imagery up there. Now, too much of that's not good for a young kid. So after 9-11, for example, there were, you know, numerous um, sort of concerns about the number of times the major networks were playing, were, uh, replaying those planes running into, you know, flying into the towers. So many children actually believed that half of New York was coming down because they just kept seeing planes going into towers. They didn't know they were the same tower. They were just more and more planes hitting more and more buildings um, because they can't discern that. So that's the sort of thing I think we just need, to, parents need to monitor kids about. Um, what happens sort of in an ongoing way afterwards, I really don't want to go there, but Roz or anybody else? Listen, I think it's about um, assuming that kids have got their way of working through things as well and within the family context. So as Richard said, you know, all of those things count, making sure they feel safe, making sure they are allowed to talk about it and draw it and have their conversations their way, I think can also be just a normalising sort of thing. Of course they want to talk about it or they'll reference it from their point of view you know, what happened to their teddy bear in that house or where's their school building gone? So, you know, allowing that to just be a normal process. Um, and it's great for the family, can I say? Because I think adults watch too much media as well and too much social media when these things are going on and become very anxious as well. Um, so it is, I think it's good to just let kids try and settle and settle within a family that's accepting that maybe Maybe they are regressing a little bit at the moment, but that's okay, it'll, it'll pass. So you would wait until, again, you felt that there was something that suggested you need to intervene. Now, of course, in family, that's perhaps more complicated than in an individual adult, making those choices of when you intervene. Um, but yeah, kids are quite resilient too, if they're safe and allowed to process it. I was thinking about your comment about the ripple effects within mm. the adults in the family and they they've lost their job and they've got nowhere to live and and those sort of ripple effects and, you know, I'm just thinking that the adults are trying to keep their head above water, literally, and they may not be thinking of how we're going to make them feel safe because we don't know, you know, where we're going to live. So I wasn't sure whether for children there was a different line because 
those closest to them were having the ripple effects. Yeah, and I suppose what I'd re-emphasise is parents are really usually good people, aside from Richard's kids' assessment of him. I'd go, you know, most of the time we... I didn't say it was inaccurate. <laughs> most of the time we would bust a gut for our kids, you know. So parents will usually first look at their child and go, oh, I don't like what's happening here, um, and, and try and seek help, whereas maybe really, you know, back to the plain analogy, they should put the mask on themselves, and then they can give those kids a sense of safety. You know, it's tricky. There's no routine. Maybe the school building doesn't exist. It's really hard for kids to find anchor points, hard for adults too. So I think um, you give them room, but it can be complex depending on family situation, what happens in that, you know, does alcohol emerge, does violence emerge, community situation, do they see their friends anymore or are they being carted off to various schools? I think all of that makes it more complex. Can you get vicarious trauma. So a lot of parents are also worried about their kids seeing the bushfires on screen and this idea that they could be traumatised by seeing these images on screen. Is there any evidence for vicarious trauma? I mean, if we just sort of keep talking about the experience on kids and I'll, I'll sort of come back to that. Um, so the epidemiology is just that, that as with adults, the risk for kids increases with the proportion of exposure. Some of the key things here are sometimes family separation during group events. Often families would be split during these events and there may be risks and fears that result from that. So it's a dose response with children. The only added thing which is sort of really emerged in the epidemiology is, you know, uh, an increased rate of mental health problems of children when the parents have, um, say, post-traumatic stress disorder, an increased rate of that. So that actually allows a kind of screening. At a public health level also, you know, high effective regions, you see a reduction in numeracy and literacy even, and there's evidence around, you know, interventions for that actually can help. So there does need, often there's good evidence for a public health response to improve child outcomes following this, because there are impaired child outcomes for high affected regions. I think Black Saturday documented that and um, the Ash Wednesday research by Sandy McFarlane documented that here as well. Um, so, you know, in general, you know, uh, you know, PTSD is a threat response injury and it's based on a broadly a true threat response uh, framework and of course that can sometimes be mediated by attachment figures and things like that but you know the notion of PTSD being engendered by witnessing it on TV uh, is in my view largely fanciful. My name's Emma I'm a clinical psychologist as well I was just interested in this idea of you mentioning the importance of conveying the message to children that the world is safe and that you know there's that they are yeah, that they're safe. And I understand that from a trauma response for adults as well, this idea that their worldview, that they can, that the world is safe and they can trust the world is also shattered. And that can be something can be really distressing. What happens if actually going forward, we're not sure if the world is safe in terms of, you know, obviously there's been a lot of conversations about has this a summer you know, set the precedent? Is this what we now expect with climate change going forward? And how can we convey that message 
Or what do we do if actually we, we can't be sure that this isn't going to happen again and be worse, if that makes sense, yeah, from a psychological that, intervention perspective? That's a really good question. Um, and there has been a lot of talk about that this summer, um, about, you know, a lot of people now saying Australia is becoming, you know, huge parts of Australia are uninhabitable and, you know, our future is, you know, on the edge and all the rest of it. And I've even done sort of radio sort of debates with people where they literally use a phrase like, you know, children should worry about this. And for me, children should not worry because worry is a, is a huge risk factor for all sorts of mental health problems and it's a mental health, it's a bad process, you know, to engage in. Um, and I think people use those sort of uh, words loosely. Um, look, we should all be concerned about climate change and we should all take action against climate change and we should all be concerned enough for it to act, you know, energise us to do things. So I'm not saying we don't do that. But to then say we should, you know, say we want, our, you know, we want to use language so children worry. Because what I would not want is to have a child, you know, not sleeping at night because they are worrying that their world is a dangerous place and, you know, they're hearing all about this, this dangerous climate and that, you know, there are fires, you know, so that come next August and September, you know, their anxiety starts to build up more and more because here they come again. And it's like, you know, I can imagine those who are prone to health anxiety, you know, getting more and more agitated as the media, you know, talks about coronavirus. And look, there are always threats in our world. Um, and I work in a lot of parts of the world where there are much more frequent and immediate threats, you know, where there are people who are in the middle of war and in and, and places like this. But they still need to live in a functional manner and hopefully maintain good mental health. And you cannot do that if you are constantly living in a state of agitation and worry about an impending threat. It's just, even if you're living in a war zone, you know, it sounds paradoxical, but we still need to maintain our our capacity to think that I can get up in the morning and I have a good chance of getting through the day, you know, with my loved ones and, you know, having a good life. Now, it's not always going to work out that way, um, but we need to work on that assumption or else it's very hard to have good mental health. And, and the reality is, you know, the, real, the, reality, the, the probab probability of these terrible things happening is actually low. Thank you. I just had a question about the new Medicare items for bushfire-related psychological issues and are they being used much at the moment? Do we have any data or um, awareness of how much those items are being used or do we think that will come in time? I don't have data, but what I would say is we don't expect that they're being used greatly just at the moment. What we expect is that it will be picked up over the next little while as things settle and people who aren't coping become more obvious. Are there any restrictions on the telehealth technology that can be used? It's, it's, restrictions probably the wrong word. Um, clearly you want a system that is secure, confidential, um, accurate. So if your AV equipment is old and clunky, then doing telehealth is very difficult because you're meant to have a visual and an audio connection with the person you're talking to. Um, beyond that, it's also the other end, you know, the trouble with some of these areas is what infrastructure have they got left? Have they got internet access? Have they got um, access to a computer? All of those sort of things um, are probably more what we have to be very careful of. How they deal with consent, clearly 
Workforce in rural and remote areas is a tricky topic generally for health and mental health in particular. So I'm not taking away from anything that others have said about on the ground is obviously the first and best option. But where there is not enough of that, you need at least on the ground to know um, who's going to look after them in a crisis. So if as part of telehealth you're phoning in from Sydney to somewhere and that person really is suicidal or decompensating badly, who in the community are you actually actively connected with who can then go and visit uh, quite pragmatically or manage that scenario? So, so I think no matter what, whichever method or means you use, there still has to be a community support structure uh, to manage telehealth. It can't be done just in isolation. A lot of the farmers and a lot of the people, I was recently out talking to farmers and fishermen out in a remote area, and just before I got up to speak, the guy said, what of a joker like you know from the city about what we go through? You know, and straight away, so I know nothing about fishing or farming, but I know a lot about depression and anxiety. And once we get it, we all end up in the same place, so it doesn't matter. That's the first thing I stood up and said. So there have they have got a feeling that us jokers from the city don't understand, that we're just there to tick a box. Um, we always found it helpful to have, if you're going to talk to a bunch of farmers, to have a farmer do a little video at the start and say, you know, you might th think this person is a joker, but it helped me listen to what their diagnosis might be and we can run from there or to normalise it with them. And I just think, I know a lot of them think that way. So I wouldn't mind seeing a bit more of that just from the feedback, because that's part of my job, I go around to all these rural remote towns and that's just a common feedback, mm. just tick the box. But if you had someone just normalising it before, sorry, I had to throw that in, yeah. uh, I think it would work really well. <laughs> Absolutely, because there's an assumption, I think, that, and I think Zach said this earlier, that normally when people knock on our door, we expect them to be ready for therapy and to know what's going on. And in some of these communities, I think they actually don't think like that. So they're not even sure when, we, when they say, OK, well, I'll give this a go, what it is they think they're getting. So that sort of normalising the process or going, sure, I don't, I, I'm not a farmer or no, I didn't run a trawler business, so you're right, I don't know what that's like. But I do know from my experience what it's like to help somebody try and manage the effects of these things. So I can offer that if you give me your knowledge of what it is you've been through. Um, I think that working relationship is really key. And like I say, you just can't away, take away from community. At the end of the day, community, building community and being the individual work has to be backed up by changes in community to be effective or else we aren't really dealing with the social determinants. I think something we haven't spoken about much um, but we probably just need to acknowledge is, is the role of GPs in this because for most of these people, they will have a GP that they do attend regularly. Um, and that's going to be the primary point of contact always. And very often people won't report that they've got a mental health problem. Um, but if they actually get asked about it, they often do. And I think one of the things that, you know, has certainly been, you know, developed more and more is sort of trying to build into the, the usual patter about how, you know, a GP, you go and see a GP, they will take your blood pressure. It's just what they will do. You know, because we know that's gotten a huge, you know, 
um, benefit in terms of indexing general health. And so being able to ask people generally about their mood or about their sleep, you know, something like that is a very nice generic inroad to then what other questions a GP might ask. And I think, you know, a lot of the problems we've talked about in terms of help seeking and barriers to care, um, you know, I think most people would say that, you know, more or less it's GP is always going to be the best way to overcome this. Of course, they're always going to see people, you know, for some reason or another. And most people with a mental health issue will go and see a GP, often for another reason, but they are seeing them. A lot of country people are scared that if they see their local, their GP in town, everyone in town will find out about it. So I always say, drive 200 k's to the next town, whatever, and that they will do that if they think, even though the GP can't tell anyone, they have this real fear about it. It's incredible, you know. It's, um, so there's some of the barriers that stop people seeking help as well. You know, send them to another town, whatever, whatever's stopping you, conquer it and do it. If, if there was more money put into infrastructure and that was done quickly, would that go to some way to mitigate some of those long-term mental health problems? So the, well, the research seemed to suggest yes. I mean, we haven't done the experimental trial, but certainly um, it's that accumulation of adversities that's, you know, they're the social determinants. And the sooner you can get you know, have reconstruction in and to mitigate financial loss and loss of resources, the reduction in overall risk. And the few studies that have been done shows that when that restoration comes in, you get a, you know, you get an increased remission rate. So there is good evidence um, around that. So it is important to see any mental health response in the context of an overall response and how critical it is important to solve the real world problems. And especially, you know, um, you know, there's long-term displacement that's going to be happening at the moment and a lot of livelihood interruption um, and one-off payments isn't going to compensate for that. So there are actually some really substantial practical things that would will support mental health if they're and, but, uh, you know, often they're the bits that, are, that do fall over. <clears throat> Should we be raising that um, as an issue as well? I ended up thinking when I was there that people need 10 sessions, but they might need four sessions with an electrician, three with a plumber, and they need somebody to come and fix the water. And then they might need two sessions with a therapist to complain about how long things took. Um, you know, because things are slow. Because I was really struck that when I was down, there was, there was um, community things happening, but people had no internet access, no phone to know what was going on. And I think, I think it's probably... So, yeah, yeah, look, I agree. I think as mental health professionals, there's a real danger um, for us to sort of really be happy that we're tapped on the shoulder uh, to be able to step in and help um, where we've got to bring the science and the sciences around social determinants are the best protectors of mental health. And these fundamental laws can't be there if you don't address that. I mean, in my area that I've worked a long time, which was working with populations subject to immigration detention, they'd love to throw psychologists in, you know, um, because it's so much easier than dealing with the human rights abuse, you know. So, um, and there's nothing a psychologist can do in the face of, you know, horrendous things like that. So we've just got to be very careful to maintain 
um, an awareness of our science, but also that broader fact that mental health um, is supported by a whole lot of other structures, and uh, and that should be a, a critical part. So, you know, if any of in that, so yes, as a community, we need to be advocated for practical, timely, effective solutions that try to restore resources in the post-conflict field. Or, and just in the trauma field altogether, there's a theory called the conservation of resources, which just sort of documents how it is the loss of resources that places people at risk, and that spirals progressively over time. And it takes a lot of resources to restore it, and often it takes a long time, you know, and that the, you can get downward spirals of resource loss or these upward spirals of resource gain. And, you know, there's quite a science behind how that happens and getting in and stopping that loss of resources is critical. Now, we've talked about, um, we've talked about these bushfires, but we also had a very brief mention of 9-11 studies as well. Um, are there any differences in terms of mental health following natural disasters versus acts of violence like terrorism? To be honest, the data is very mixed. Um, there is some data that more man-made or interpersonally instigated events can be more adverse. But to be honest, the data is actually very mixed. And I think the reason for that is there are just so many factors that make up a disaster. It's, it's, it's easy to have a simple conclusion, but one, I don't think one really exists. Hi, I just wanted to know whether there's a difference in how men and women react to trauma. Well, that we do know a lot about. Um, we know a lot about that and essentially women are twice as likely, for example, to develop PTSD um, and that's even, it's, it's, you know, years ago we attributed that to assaults, rape, childhood abuse, things like that. People put it more towards the, the gender bias of the sort of event that people were exposed to. Um, but to be honest, you know, I think we've also developed a lot more, you know, models now and been a lot of work done that sells a lot of hormonal factors. So a lot of the sex hormones actually contribute to how we consolidate trauma memories. So both estradiol and progesterone play an important role. And um, even to the point that, you know, it depends where, when you, where you are in the menstrual cycle, when you are exposed to a trauma can impact on, on how uh, badly it affects you. So there seems to be hormonal factors that contribute to that that risk factor as well. Okay, so going forward, um, although people are only now dealing with the last season, what can we expect how people who have been through these fires will cope next summer? Is there anything we can do to prepare for this? Wayne, why don't you have, you, you've, you've had repeated experience, so why don't you comment? This is your question, Richard. <laughs> right. Well, we're doing a pretty good job. I mean, there's lots of money for more resources, so that gives people confidence that things will be all right. You know, we're, they're talking about getting planes and tankers and helicopters. I mean, so it does give you a bit of confidence to know that if the door's at your, you know, if the fire's at your front door, there's going to be the resources. Um, I know we shouldn't be scaring people, um, but, you know, letting them know that if it does come, we're ready. That's the best thing you can do. And that's really it. You know, okay, we've learnt. We're preparing with the young ones as long as they know. You know, I, I had depression when I was young and the main thing for me was 
my family letting me know that no matter what happened, there'd be they would be there with me. And for me, I just think the parents or the teachers or their loved ones just keep saying, no matter what happens, I'm here for you. That helps a lot of the other stuff dissolve. If you know, It's like all of us, we want someone to have our back. Um, I think as long as they know that someone has that their back, that will ease the pain and the tension that may come. I think it's really just hyper what all of us feel about everything, that, well, people stick by us, they'll have our back, we're better prepared than we were last time. And we're doing a pretty good job. I think the average person is showing they care. And all those things, when you're having dark times, you hang on to the smallest things and those things can really change what happens next. And I think we're doing pretty good at that. Everyone's trying their best anyway, and that's pretty obvious to all. Do we expect to see any like increase next year as the temperature begins to rise again? Some fears around the fires reoccurring and how do we manage with that? I think the key word there is fears, mm. not necessarily disorder. Mm. So, you know, if you live in one of these areas and it's 35 degrees and it's, you know, huge winds, I mean, yeah, people will get twitchy and I, that's probably fair enough. Yeah. Probably a lot of people, you know, do and that's understandable. Um, it's about how, you know, we manage that. But I think, you know, again, I think I'd come back to the GPs and if, you know, you are in a region like this and... Um, we're, we're going into those sort of conditions, um, you know, be aware of that. But if people are coming in and they're complaining about sleep or they're complaining about, you know, particular irritability or there's signs that they're drinking more or something like that, you know, we may want to ask, you know, how are you, how are you tra tracking? And is there something we can do about it? Um, but we do need to remember that this is not the first fire season we've ever had. Yes, it was a big one in the sense of how long and the amount of area it covered. But there are many communities that go through this a lot. And shifting gear a bit, if you, if you go up to Queensland and you look at a lot of the effect, uh, areas affected by cyclones, I mean, they are regularly seasonal. And there's a lot of areas that, that just, you know, they cop it, you know, time and time again. Um, and most of these people just know, oh, well, it's that time of year again. Let's do what we do. Um, I think one of my main concerns next summer is the number of tourists who will not go back to these places come Christmas and what happens to their economy. And, you know, I think it's important that the tourists don't get twitchy and don't get scared and so they don't go back. Because I think one of the things that we should be doing is, is you know, supporting these people because if life is back to normal and the tourists are back there and they're going to the beach and doing those things, then that's actually very important too in terms of providing the positive. And one of the big things we know about trauma and stress generally, you know, we always talk about the negative, but if there is positive there, you know, if there are the rewards coming in, that actually is a huge buffer against any negative impact of an event. All right. On that note, I want to thank our panellists for a fantastic night and a discussion. Um, just a little reminder that our next one will be on Tuesday, 17th of March. We've got the wrong date up there, and it's going to be looking at prevention of mental illness in adolescent challenges and innovations, and our panel is already set for that. But before we finish up tonight, thank you. Can we please give a round of applause to our fantastic...
Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.